Our reading for today, our reading for today is Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called into one body. And be thankful. Let the word of God Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God, the Father, through him. The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. Welcome. Um, so good to be here at New Brunswick Seminary uh, with a few of you and for those of you watching on Zoom. Um, it really is just such a blessing to be with, with some people in the same room, to be physically together, to hear the responses uh, in the shared space. So thank you for being here. And I want to encourage those of you who are watching from Zoom, um, you can still sign up to join us for next week's service uh, here at the seminary. Uh, you can find your instructions in the last week's Wednesday Word. You don't have to wait until the new Wednesday Word to sign up. Um, I know that some of you are still concerned about safety and things like that, but I want you to know that uh, we've made this place as safe uh, as can be. And um, I would really just encourage you to um, consider coming and joining us for uh, corporate worship. Uh, please join me in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you um, this day that we can begin to gather once again uh, in your house, in your name, to worship you. Help us to worship together um, in this space, in this physical space, as well as through this remote space. And we ask that all that we do would please you, bring glory to your name. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. This is now the sixth sermon in a series of sermons I'm preaching on the topic of worship. Just to review, we've been considering uh, three asks, three aspects of worship um, over these uh, last couple of months. These aspects of worship that require our attention. First aspect of worship is the physical, the posture of the body. And we worship God primarily in body through bowing or kneeling. Then we talked about worship as an orientation of one's life. That is, we are to worship God with all of our lives, in spirit and in truth, uh, with clean hands and a pure heart. And then lately now we're focusing on worship as liturgy, the time that when we gather together for Sunday morning worship. We began with baptism, this rite of initiation into the family of God, this covenantal sign and promise that God gives to us, a rite that we enter into as a trust of God's promises. And last week we talked about prayer and specifically the prayer of confession, that because we know this God, this, this King of glory, creator of heaven and earth, and yet the Father who loves us and who desires for intimacy, 
who seeks to forgive us. And so we can go to this God in confidence, in confession. And today I want to talk about praise or singing. Uh, what Paul writes about psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs as the next piece of our liturgy. In our reading today, you heard that Paul exhorts us to live this new life in Jesus Christ. He calls us to put on this new clothes of this new life. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forbearance, and forgiveness. And most of all, he calls us to put on love and to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, or more literally, to let the peace of Christ umpire, be the arbiter, the decider in our hearts. It is the peace that God makes possible for us through Christ who bought it for us through his life. It's also the peace, the shalom, the well-being which we pursue in our shared life together as the community of God. And as a part of this new life, Paul writes, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. This same cluster of words appears again in Ephesians chapter 5. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart. We are called to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It's possible that Paul is thinking about three different kinds of songs. For example, the Psalms might be a reference simply to the book of Psalms and the Psalms that we find there. Hymns could be a technical word to talk about particular kinds of songs that praise God or God's character. And spiritual songs can be understood as those that are inspired by the Holy Spirit. But more likely, he's probably using these words as synonyms and more generally to cover all genre of music and singing to God. Songs and congregational singing have always been a part of the worship of God. I think for me, a part of the joy of worship is simply being together and hearing our shared voices in song. And it seems to me that music is an essential quality of what it means to be human. In the Bible, for example, the first recorded human words are set in verse, not in prose. When Adam first saw Eve, he didn't respond with a lecture on anthropology or human anatomy. In his wonder and amazement, his first words were closer to song than anything else. He said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And shortly after that, in Genesis 4.21, along with the mention of the beginnings of domestication of animals, the invention of music is highlighted as a similarly noteworthy human achievement and development. Jubal was the father of all those who played the lyre and pipe and guitar and drums and piano and saxophones. Throughout the scriptures, we are called to sing to God and specifically to sing to God a new song. For example, throughout the Psalms, we hear something like Psalm 149, 
praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. The prophet Isaiah also said, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. And even in Revelation at the end, in all eternity, we are told that those gathered in heaven, they sang a new song. They continue to sing a new song. Now singing a new song to God doesn't mean that we have to create a new song every time we gather, that we have to learn a new song every time we gather for worship. Rather, songs can become new because our experiences of God are new and our understanding of God are new. So you could sing, God is so good every day, and each day it's a new song because you discover for yourself each day that God is good in a new way. Think about it this way. In my family, one of the most popular meals that my wife prepares for us is linguine and clam sauce. She makes it regularly, and she generally follows the same recipe each time she makes it. But sometimes, like now because of the pandemic, Wegmans inexplicably will be out of linguine. They have all the other noodles, but somehow they don't have linguine. So she might have to switch to thin spaghetti or something else. Maybe the brand of clams that she likes is out of stock and she has to switch to something else. Or in some other way, she has to slightly modify her usual recipe. So technically, it's a new dish. But it's also new because the circumstances of her cooking it and us eating it are new each time. I know now that when she makes it now, that it's harder for her because of all the, the joint pains that she has. So it's new for me in, the, in that I can appreciate it more because I know the extra effort that it takes for, for her to make it. Also very recently, one of my kids commented, Mom, this is my least favorite of your pasta dishes. Yeah. Not the smartest thing to say to your mother. He or she meant to say that he really loved another pasta dish that she makes, but you know, he or she could have phrased it a little bit better. So now whenever we eat this dish, it's new because there is now this additional memory, this new layer of understanding. And we get to give that child grief every time and have a good laugh together. So when we sing about God's creation or of God's work in Jesus Christ for us, it's not new in one sense. We know about it. It's, been, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's done. It's been finished. But it's new for us each time as we grow and as we experience God and God's love for us in deeper ways. Psalm 98 tells us, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for us. In that spirit, the very first song in corporate worship that we find in the scriptures celebrate God's deliverance of his people, the work that God has done, this marvelous thing, in delivering the people of God from Pharaoh and his armies through the Red Sea. Exodus 15, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse 
and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. That's just the beginning of the song. And each time the Israelites sang that song, it was an old song, but it became new because they continue to have new experiences of God's deliverance. At the end of his life, when Moses was giving his last words to his people, it's quite telling that he didn't give them a sermon or a, a list of rules. He gave them a new song. Deuteronomy 31, Then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly of Israel. The last thing that he gave to his people was a song. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Some of you may remember these words from an old song, though you probably didn't remember that it's by Moses. We'll sing it later today, and it will become a new song for us, even if you knew it, because now we're going to remember this song as one of the songs that we sang together for our first in-person worship service in this time of pandemic. Moses gave them a song because he knew that songs are stickier than speeches. In the coming weeks, you're far more likely to hum a song that you hear today from today's service than you are to review the three points of this sermon. Do you remember as a teenager listening to a love song and thinking, that's exactly how I feel? I can remember as a young person listening especially to Billy Joel and thinking his lyrics expressed exactly how I felt and what I was thinking. And I was so glad that he or anyone knew or found words to express what I was feeling. That's a part of the power of song. Musical lyrics may not be as precise as theological statements, but they can capture and express our thoughts and, and emotions and even truths to God in a way that perhaps prose cannot. King David, too, in his last words, are remembered for his song, 2 Samuel 23. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The sweet psalmist of Israel. We know that in his life, David took very special care in designing the temple and worship and organizing the musicians for the worship of God. And many of the Psalms that we have today in our Bible are the Psalms that he himself wrote or that he oversaw. And the impact of David's music and of his planning for the worship in the worshiping life of Israel are just immeasurable, even down to this day. For example, we find in 2, Corinthians, uh, 2 Chronicles 29, we're told about that during the days of King Hezekiah, they worshiped God and we're told they sang praises to the Lord with the words of David. And they sang these things with joy. And it's these same psalms that we continue to sing today for which continue to be thankful. 
when we get to the New Testament, after 400 years of silence, by the way, some of the first words that celebrate the good news of Jesus Christ and the coming of the Messiah are again set in verse and suggestive of song. Everyone from Elizabeth and Zechariah to Mary to the angelic choir announcing the birth of Christ to the shepherds, everyone speaks in verse. The good news of Jesus Christ is more musical than drama. And just as the people of Israel sang praise to God for his deliverance, so the church continues to sing in thanksgiving for God's deliverance in Jesus Christ. And Martin Luther said, For God has made our hearts and spirits happy through his dear Son, whom he has delivered up, that we might be redeemed from sin, death, and the devil. He who believes this sincerely and earnestly cannot help but be happy. He must cheerfully sing and talk about this, that others might hear it and come to Christ. Now, I know that some of you don't like to sing, and some of you are uh, shy and self-conscious about your uh, singing in front of others. Believe me, I know exactly what that feels like. But as Luther says, there ought to be such joy, such joy attached to God's deliverance that that song just flows out of us as a natural response. The Apostle Paul and his companion Silas, for example, after having been beaten and locked up in the deepest recesses of a prison, they sang in worship to God because of the joy that they had in their salvation. Now, we may not know a whole lot about the exact liturgy in the church's early beginnings, but we definitely know that they sang, that this was a very important mark that the church continued in the worship of God. One of the earliest records, in fact, that we have of church worship uh, from outside of the Bible comes from a letter that Pliny, the, a governor of, of Bithynia, who wrote to the emperor Trajan regarding the Christians at the beginning of the second century. Uh, some Christians had been um, captured, were being imprisoned and tortured, and Pliny interrogated them to find out what Christianity was all about, what, what Christians are. And so he wrote a letter to the emperor uh, in part to explain what he had discovered about Christians. And this is, part, this is what he wrote. He wrote, they asserted, that is the Christians, however, that the sum and substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God and to bind themselves by oath not to do some crime, but not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery, not falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. I mean, this letter is so interesting in, in, for so many reasons. But I just want to highlight that the early Christians were accused of meeting on a fixed day, that is probably Sunday, and for singing a song, a hymn to Christ, as if to a God. That's what the Christians did. They met early in the morning, earlier than when we're meeting now, and they sang to Christ as to God. As Christians today, in Christian worship, this is exactly what we continue to do. 
we sing to Christ as God, as Lord and Savior. And notice in this letter that there is this ethical dimension of worshiping together, that those who praise God together also bind themselves to one another in love. And this is exactly what Paul is writing in his letter to the Colossians. Our new life in Jesus Christ, sealed and affirmed by God in the waters of baptism, leads us not only to worship God in joyful song, but to commit ourselves in love to one another. With that, let me make a few reflections about singing and music in worship. First, praise or singing is to God. Praise and singing is to God. Now, it may be painfully obvious, but let me say that again. We sing and we praise to God. The writer of Hebrews 13 says, through Jesus, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. The focus of our praise, of our singing, must be on God. Our praise should glorify God. It should be Christ-centered and spirit-led. We do this because God is so good and we are thankful for what God has done. We're not showing off what we've done. We're just offering praise and thankfulness for what God has done. Notice that in this passage, Paul surrounds his call to sing with thanksgiving. Three times in three verses, he tells us to be thankful. Be thankful. Sing with thanksgiving in your hearts. And in everything, in whatever you do, including singing, do it by giving thanks to God. To God. Our singing, like the rest of our worship and the rest of our lives, is to be characterized by thanksgiving and thanksgiving to God. We sing, not to us, but to your name be the glory. I say this because in some churches and among some Christians and ministries, there has developed this false notion that the purpose of worship, and particularly worship music, is to give the congregation a spiritual lift or an emotional high. I know this is going to sound like a pet peeve, but too often I hear what I would refer to as praise or music, that part of the worship where we sing together, referred to as worship, as if singing or the praise part of a worship service was the central part of worship or in fact all of worship. Sometimes people will ask, how was worship? Meaning, how was the band today? I'm all for good music. Singing itself is a form of worship, as is prayer, as is work, as is being a mother, as is all of life. But in the context of a worship service, in terms of the liturgy, the praise or the singing is a part of the entire service. It is not or should not be equated with worship. Edith Humphrey, in her book on worship, has identified five worrisome trends in worship, which I think applies almost entirely to worship music. Trivializing worship with preoccupation with mood, misdirecting worship with human-centeredness rather than God-centeredness, deadening worship 
by the loss of the Word of God, perverting worship with emotional, self-indulgent experiences at the expense of true liturgy, and exploiting worship with market-driven market values. When our praise focuses on us, on creating a particular mood in the service for us, when it becomes about how I feel about God, when much of the lyrics are about how I feel about God, this sort of temperamental, subjective feelings that I have toward God at this moment, rather than the objective reality and the truth, the foundational, everlasting, unchanging truth of what God has done for us, when it becomes about how I feel about the music, then it's no longer worship to God. It becomes about us rather than about God. My family will tell you that given my musicality or the lack thereof, I'm the last person that should be judging music. And I will not do that today. However, I can point out that the lyrics of modern praise songs have a tendency to be too self-referential and lean toward cliched simplicity, rather than pursuing the deeper waters, a deeper depth, a, a rich knowledge of God and of Christ. We, we need to remember that what's popular in Christian or worship music is not necessarily good music for worship. I'm not, we don't have to be, you know, policing music Every song, like every sermon and every prayer, we can pick out things that, that are not quite right. I'm, I'm not getting it. I'm not talking about that. I'm not suggesting we become uh, theological snobs about what we can sing and not, things like that. But we ought to be careful. We ought to be thoughtful about what we sing to God and the choice of the music that we pick. Like the first Christians, we want to make sure that we are singing songs to Christ as to God. We want to focus on God's character and God's love for us, on Christ's redeeming work, and on the Spirit's empowering presence in our lives. All praise, like all of worship in life, must be directed toward and centered on God. Second, Paul's use of this three words of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs Tell me that a variety of songs and musical genre are acceptable and encouraged in our worship of God. I've told you before that in my first job as a youth pastor, I had to persuade the pastor and the session to allow me to use a guitar instead of the piano during the youth group worship service. I never quite understood why a piano was more acceptable or somehow more holy um, rather than a guitar, but I suspect it's because the guitar was associated with rock and roll, and you know, rock and rolls, you know, that was a no-no back, back in the old days. But I also remember the youth group listening to what was then called edgy Christian rap, which I thought was terrible, but the youth told me that I was just old. Music and song are, of course, culturally conditioned, time-sensitive, and a matter of taste. It so happens that most of the songs, most of the music that we sing in this church, in this congregation, are either traditional hymns or a product of what is commonly called contemporary Christian music, or CCM. 
Many of you grew up with this type of music in your churches because this is what campus ministry sang, what Asian American churches sang, youth groups sang, and so on. But in this season of heightened racial awareness, I think we should acknowledge that CCM, this contemporary Christian music, is largely the music of a small segment of American Christianity, that of white evangelicalism, which most of the churches that I know about in terms of the Asian American churches adopted for a host of reasons, some of which are simply historical, but some are racist, though not always intentionally so. The result is that we are less familiar with songs of other traditions and denominations, other streams of people praising God in this country and in the world. Like the songs of the black churches, for example, which some would argue are, are richer in meaning because of their suffering and just better musically. But I can't judge that. I'm not trying to suggest that one genre of music is better than another. But if you have worshipped with other denominations or other traditions or in other countries, you've come to appreciate that there is this, this richness of music and worship in the worship of God. I know that whenever I go to Kenya, for example, I'm so thankful that I get to participate in their style of more physical worship, in their liturgy, although I don't think that my body can handle it for more than a week or so at a time. I'm very thankful for the music and the praise that we share together in this church. But I would love to see our musical repertoire just expand and broaden in the years ahead. Not as a form of, you know, um, cultural appropriation or anything like that, but as a way of encouraging creativity and of broadening our appreciation of God's gift of music to all of God's people. It, it, it's another way of exploring and singing new songs to God. Third, the choice of song and musical style must not be driven by personal preference, but by the love of others. The entire passage in Colossians is about our life together, about caring for one another, singing together, is not only a form of worship, but it is a sign of pastoral care. Our liturgy is referred to as a hybrid liturgy, uh, not only because uh, we have Zoom and uh, in-person service going on at the same time, but it's a hybrid of all kinds of different forms. And musically, for example, we sing both contemporary songs as well as traditional hymns. And over the years, some of you have told me that you don't like the contemporary songs, that you like the hymns. While others of you told me, you know, I, like, I don't like the hymns, can't we just sing the praise songs? I can still remember um, in the beginning of, of this ministry, many of my clergy friends warned me not to do a hybrid liturgy. They said it's not going to work because everyone is going to hate something about it. For many, it was a question of preference and pragmatism and saying, hey, just find what people like and just go with that. That way you can, you know, draw the most or the majority of people. But liturgy and music is not a matter of preference. And they must never become simply marketing strategy to draw more people. 
The choice of song and musical style is a question of pastoral care. It's not about my preference, but about what is best or better for the whole congregation. The question is not what do I like or even what kind of music is better. Rather, it ought to be what pleases God? What, bring, what brings God more glory? And how can this unify us in the one body of Christ? The questions we need to ask are not so much about the latest trends in musicality, but about what leads to unity and love of our brothers and sisters in the worship of God. How can we accommodate to others in our family, those who are older and those who are younger, so that we can all better praise God together? You know, I can remember when our children were younger, whenever we took a road trip, we had to decide what music was going to be played in the car. And believe me, I didn't always or often like the choices my children made. But we let everyone pick something. Everyone got to pick at least something during our trips. And occasionally, someone would pick a song that everyone actually liked. We still disagree about what is good music, but we learned each other's songs, and we even learned to enjoy a few of the other's songs. These days, of course, I know that everyone has their own phone, everyone has their own earbuds and headphones, and so no one has to listen to anyone else's songs. You just listen to whatever you like. When you're home alone and you're praising God by yourself, you listen to whatever you want. That's fine. But when we come together in worship, that is not the case. We sing together, and that means we have to sometimes lay aside our preferences for the sake of the congregation. We have to learn each other's songs. Sometimes that's a child song with motions. Sometimes it's a new song that you have never heard before and you don't like the tune. Sometimes it's an old hymn that maybe will bring you back old memories. Worship and singing must always be framed within our shared life together as the people of God. As Paul tells us, our singing and worship is the context, right? He sets it in this context of bearing with one another, forgiving one another, teaching and admonishing one another. We sing together because we are one in Christ and we are driven to love one another in Christ. That is our worship. So let's sing together to God in joyful thankfulness. Let's sing to God a new song. Let's ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect and all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice. Good and upright is he. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of music. We thank you for those who lead us in music. We thank you that when we gather, we can hear one another in joyful praise to you. Help us in this part of our worship, as in everything else, to keep our focus upon you and to be mindful of those around us so that all of our praising may be to you and to your glory and not to us. We pray now the prayer Jesus taught us, 
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.